You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks, brought to you in full Technicolor. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And we've already started with a smile. Um, I'm working on, my, my batteries are down to about uh, um, less than half right now, so I'm working on some cylinders if not all of them i'm fine i'm perfectly fine oh that's so good i've got i've got the energy for the both of us uh oh, which that's is why we, why i'm in a bit of a silly mood which is why <laughs> i'll put i'll put it at the end but people will hear how i did the theme tune like when, yeah, all the regulars <laughs> know that, that they know how i do like a different variation of the theme tune with my own voice on each week yeah i'm gonna tag this week's one on the end <laughs> <laughs> so i've just got back from a wedding um in london 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 that london for those who don't live in that london it is the son of a very famous british film director and his lovely wife who is a long long time friend of my other half and it was a little bit celebby-ish you say that but it was a beautiful uh, beautiful day um they've got huge grounds for uh, for the house so the wedding was was a lot of it was outside but no matter what, when you go down to London, especially driving back, it's such a tiring affair. For some reason, we stayed at a hotel and at five o'clock, boom, I was wide awake and just couldn't drift back to sleep. I eventually did so, but I was awake for at least an hour. Uh, and when I'm tired, I'm trying to go to sleep. I list things in my head to try and help me, help me focus on not doing that thing of going, oh, I've got to go to sleep, I've got to go to sleep. And so I was listing numerous things uh, that weren't working, but I, eventually I did drift back off to the land of sleep well as long as you don't fall asleep halfway through the podcasts that'll be okay no although if you, if you do I'll just, I'll just keep talking and then yeah, like, you everyone... probably won't notice for at least 10 minutes andy come on I'll, I'll cut and paste some old footage like from earlier shows for your responses it, it'll yeah. work we can do it oh. um, quick updates for the listeners out there deep dive updates and this is becoming a regular thing now big fish which we spoke about last week landed on sky movies oh good this week. So if you've not seen it, a chance to enjoy it. And uh, Buckaroo Banzai, which me and Lee had a big oh, disagreement yes. about all those episodes ago. It's available on Amazon Freebie for those who want to check out why Lee loves it and why I don't. <laughs> Remember, no matter where you are, you're always there. See, I, I just keep checking every now and then and something that we've already spoken about pops up that when it when we spoke about it, it wasn't available somewhere. So I think it's a nice little public service thing that I'm doing here to let people know. Yeah, oh, that's good. It's quite handy that Big Fish landed literally just after we spoke about it. Perfect it's, it's time. A great, it's like great Sky movie. listened to the show. Sky <laughs> must have listened to the show and gone, these guys know films and we need to put these films on. Aside from that, we're halfway through the year. We'll literally hit the six months point, which means it's time for Andy to give a quick recap of what his viewing habits have been this year. As I, like regulars know, I log all my movie viewing on Letterboxd. And so now that we're six months through, I just thought I'd do a quick update on where I'm at and what I think so far my favourite films and least favourite films of the year are. So I've watched 240 films this year. Wow. That's an average of 40 per month. Um, 68 of those films were films that were released this year. And they're the ones that I'm more interested in to which are the top films, which are the bottom films. And going on my Letterboxd ran rankings, my top films... I only have two five-star films. One of them is Tetris, okay. and the other one wow. is Spider-Verse. And then I've got a few four-and-a-half-star films, which were Asteroid City, because, of course, it's Wes Anderson. Of course, it was going to Still be at least four-and-a-half I'm going to get a chance to see it this week. I've, I've put time aside to see it this week. It, it's a treat. Bo is Afraid, 
made it into me top five. And I've also got battling for the last couple of spots in the top five are still A, John Wick 4 and the Three Musketeers, D'Artagnan. So it's going to be a jostle this year, but when it gets to the end of the year and we have to do our top fives for the year, it's going to be a heck of a jostle going on there. Worst films, though, this is dead easy. With one star, I've got Murder Mystery 2 and Cocaine Bear. Those films were terrible. <laughs> I do remember you talking about both of those with uh, and how you addressed them. The worst film I've seen this year. And you might remember when I spoke about this one. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Half a star. And I only gave it half a star because I don't like giving anything zero stars. Because it just existed and you had to give it something. <laughs> um, so it's been a mixed bag of a year. It, normally by this point of the year, I've got about four or five films that I've given five stars to. So I've only got two which kind of shows that either I'm getting a bit jaded in my old age. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. You're more forgiving as you get older. Or the films just aren't gelling as much. Uh, but it's not been a bad year. Like I say, 60... anyone who said, all the people who say, oh, there's no originality in Hollywood anymore and there's nothing comes out anymore. Well, I've seen 68 new films this year. And in my top list, the only one that I'd say there's no originality with, well, there's two, the Spider-Verse, but it's an original version of what we've seen before. And The Three Musketeers which is uh, another adaptation and a lush adaptation of a great book. I was so disappointed I missed that. Tetris, brand new. Asteroid City, brand new. Bo's Afraid, brand new. Still great documentary. A great biopic. There's originality out there. You just need to actually go and watch them rather than watching your Fast and Furious franchises. Well, people aren't, as we've discovered, <laughs> and people aren't watching The Flash either. So They're not watching much. Oh, right. Well, we'll talk about that when we get to, to box office. Yes. What we will talk about for now, though, is the fact that we set a social challenge last week. We one I enjoyed, do. one of my favourite social challenges, it made me think an awful lot about how a film can end. And, and interestingly enough, and if the last shot or the last scene doesn't gel, that sometimes it spoils everything that comes before it. So, for instance, Minority Report, which I, I love as a film, until kind of the last scenes. Mm. And it lets the entire shebang down great movie until the very very last scene and that shot uh, which is quite Spielberg I suppose it, it, there was some hope in it but it sort of it sort of let the rest of the movie down for me so we asked on our social challenges last week your all-time favorite either last shot or very last scene after the fight scene or the denouement with you know the, the, the plot is concluded what is the very very last shot or last scene which you think is well worth mentioning uh, we've had a a handful of decent responses on this. Uh, first up, Lindsay Story over on Facebook has to be the choose life speech at the end of train spotting, just because you know Renton has gotten away and that smile at the end. Or another one is the grandpa at the end of Lost Boys. The end of train spotting is one that came to my mind as well. Um, mm. it, it's a great choice. I mean, it booked that, that film's book ended by the opening speech and then the ending speech, and it's just perfection. It's absolute perfection. And like she says, his wry smile. Hugh McGregor's wry smile as he knows that he's gotten away with it. Fantastic. Also over on Facebook, my mum replied with, let's see if you can get the what movie reference this is. Oh, Jerry, yeah. don't let's ask for the moon. We have the stars. It's Betty Davis. It's Betty it Davis. Is. Now Voyager. Yes, well done. Yeah, she loves that one because basically it's better to be happy with what you have than what you want. And she just thinks that's a really good motto to go through life with and can't agree more. Through Spotify, because you can answer these questions via Spotify. Carl Hodkin, for me, it would have to be The Shining, the camera going inside the gold room to the picture from the long hallway, the music playing in the background, Jack's face, terrified him when he first watched it. Loves it. You know, there was an alternate ending to that film that 
Kubrick actually went or sent an assistant editor round uh, movie theaters to cut the other ending off, which was <laughs> the meeting between the, the surviving family and the guy who mm. sent them out there. But it was it was literally in in the cinemas, and Kubrick was was uh, uh, trimming the film while it was playing. Anyway, thanks for that one, Carl. It's uh, it, it's actually one that I had shortlisted on my own ones, and then I've read his one. It's like, well, I don't need to submit it for me, um, and one that you won't have to submit because Stephen Young, sculptor, has submitted Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid comes to mind. That freeze frame, perfect ending. The ending that you don't want. It's like Carl and Stephen just want to be us. They want to take over this show. I think they're slowly evolving. <laughs> And one of these weeks, it's going to be, hi, welcome to the film file. I'm Carl, I'm Stephen. And we'll be like, what's going on? <laughs> it's, that sounds like a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> it's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And that's actually one of my closing shot um, selections, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, especially the uh, 1978 Donald Sutherland one. Absolutely chilling. Over on Twitter, Stevie Dan 1969. Now, this is, this is a, a, an absolute perfection one. John Wayne walking away in the searches. Perfect yeah, shot. Through the doorway. Door absolute perfection and i think on the instagram channel i actually used that image with the question yeah awesome amazing last shot uh you you submitted bush cassidy over on twitter and as well as the thing yeah yes the things have yeah. got a great closing to sh the the shot of uh kurt russell and keith david and you know waiting it out as the fire starts to die and you are no wiser than the characters is did one of them become infected and be, and be part of the thing or are they both clean? It's a fantastic ending and, and that ambiguity mm. makes the film a classic. Over on Mastodon, Steve Hampson posted an image of that still shot from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yep. It was always going to be a popular choice. A Dad Insane, Steve Turnbull, just put Nobody's Perfect. Yeah, some like it hard. Uh, one of the best endings to a movie ever. Harvey Morton just posted Roads, Where We're Going. We don't need roads. And yes. Yeah. Oh, I remember the joy of seeing that on the big screen for the first time. And like the car just flies towards the screen and you're just like pumped up. It's just like, that's a perfect ending. Aussie at Macedon World. I adore the ending of Eternal Sunshine. Just a simple, casual, tossed off. Okay. And a slight shrug followed by giggling. It's nonsensical without its context and beautiful within it. Rewatched that recently. It's so good. Well, I think we need to put it on the deep dive list because uh, I've yeah. not had a chance to rewatch it for a while, but I keep meaning to. Um, Synecdoche, New York as well. The final line, die, followed immediately by a cut to a blank white screen. Two great choices there. And one from Mastodon, which ties in nicely to what we keep saying that we love to do. You know how we keep saying, challenge us with a film that you can't remember the name of. Tell yeah. us something about it and we'll track it down. Took me a couple of minutes and I managed to help someone out on this one. A nom nom nomaly over on Mastodon said, I can't remember the name of the film, but there's a scene where the good guys are leaving at the end and their muscle car crashes into a train as it's going over a crossing and explodes. I was probably only about 10 or 11 years old when I saw it on TV. And I think it's the first time I ever saw a movie where the good guys didn't get away and win. That scene has always stuck with me as a result. I recognize oh, that. Me. It's stuck in my furious, head. Is it? Nope. Dirty Murray. Crazy Larry. From 1974. Yellow yes, Muscle Car. Peter Fonda and Susan George. Yes, that's the one. Genuinely, like, I, I was like, I, I just like said, like, is, was it was it Dirty Murdy, Crazy Larry, Yellow Muscle Car? They're just about to cross the border when the car's hit by the train. It bursts into flames, end credits roll. And he's like, yeah, it was definitely a Yellow Muscle Car. And I did some more search and I found a copy of the clip online and bang on, spot on. Exactly Fantastic. what I remember. That's what we love doing. We love doing that little bit of detective work. We did one a, a week or so ago. Yep. Test us. Please feel free to test us. Yeah, I've got a, a lot of love for that kind of 70s 
movie. Mm. You've got uh, Vanishing Point, which again is one of those uh, nihilistic endings. Um, the seventies movies were, were great for that. The, the heroes didn't always survive. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, where it's just Clint Eastwood driving off without Jeff yeah. Bridges uh, to a Paul Williams song. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of Paul Williams as well. Uh, four, which I came up with, I've already mentioned Invasion, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. Oh, what yeah. a chilling ending. Uh, the Graduate, the excitement yeah. of them running away from the wedding and like, yay, we're together, and then cutting to the awkwardness on the back of the bus, which was because yeah. they kept holding the take and didn't tell them to cut. But it actually works to show yeah. the characters starting to doubt that they've done the right thing and starting to realise this isn't actually what I want. Brilliant. There will be blood. That framing of that bo the bowling lane with the bloody D-Lie is blood flowing into the gutter lane and the carnage that is round and Daniel just telling his butler, I'm finished. Yeah. Marvellous, marvellous ending. And we'll be talking about it as part of our deep dive. But come on, that perfect riding into the sunset of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, it, well, in, in fact, the, the last shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when it pulls back to the warehouse, mm. uh, that eerie John Williams music playing as we suddenly realise that there's an awful lot that the government do know that the rest yes. of us didn't. Awesome. Some great choices. Thank you, everybody, for, for uh, helping choice. us out with that one. We must try and do something very similar. And in fact, maybe this week will intrigue you. So what's a film that you love, got some time for, that everybody else hates? <laughs> that no matter what other people tell you, that how, you know, how low it rates on Rotten Tomatoes or, you know, your friends who you share a podcast with say, no, don't get Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> film that you love that everybody else hates. Wild Wild West. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, perfect choice actually, because it, it's not very well received. People have don't have much love for Wild Wild West, except you do, and that's what's important to you. Yes, I love it, absolutely love it. Um, I'm sure by next week I'll have a list as long as me on um, on this one, and I'm sure we should get some interesting responses, most of which are going to pro provoke either groans or complete agreement and insistence by me to put them on the deep dive list. Well, they don't have to be B movies or Z movies. There's a lot of a lot of big movies which the general populace didn't mm -hmm. take to, but for some reason, you love it. I'm sure out there somewhere, there's people who actually think Independence Day Resurgence is actually a good film. Are you, you one so? of them? <laughs> In an infinite universe, there's a chance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so films that everybody hates, except you. Doesn't matter what it is. Could be a B movie, could be a Z movie, could be uh, a celebrated disaster. But for whatever reason, you love it. Let us know across the socials. And those socials are? Over on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. Just search for Film File UK. There we are. I'll post the questions out on there. And if you're listening to us via Spotify, the question will also be linked in the Spotify description. So you can answer us directly through Spotify. We're that good. Or if you're listening on another service and you don't do socials, email us in the answer. Podcast at filmfile.uk. I am actually very giddy for, for this answer, by the way. <laughs> have you got have you got some absolute corkers at the back of your mind ready to surprise us with? Well, you see, because I love them and I'm I'm, I'm attuned into thinking that they're, they're great movies. So like Buckaroo Banzai, for instance. Yeah, it's a perfect example. Um, so, yeah, get in touch. Let us know what your ones are, and inevitably they will end up on the deep dive list at some point. So, what have we got on this week's film file? So much to pack in, so much to talk about. We've got a deep dive into 1981's Steven Spielberg movie, and in light of the release of the new Indiana Jones movie, we're going to be talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Is it the best out of the series? We'll tell you, we'll discuss. We've got a review of 
said Indiana Jones film, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Andy will also be talking about Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, the latest DreamWorks offering that landed at cinemas this week. And because it landed on Netflix last week, I thought to check out Matilda the Musical and tell you what I thought. Do it in song, Andy. Do it in song. I'll have okay, to get Tim Minchin to write the song. <laughs> <laughs> Before that, of course, we've got the news and we've got this week's box office. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny was this week's big release. Is it in the number one position? And if it is, is it going to stay there? What's happened to The Flash? Has it completely run out of steam? Is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse still swinging in and holding on with its web-like grip? And he's going to tell us. So Indiana Jones has whipped his way to the top of the box office. In the US, it opens in first place, taking a slightly disappointing 60 million this opening weekend. It was projected to do slightly more than that, but it appears to be yet another victim of the overcrowded market space that we've got at the moment. Elemental holds on to second place, taking another 12 million. Despite its weak opening weekend, it's been holding over well week on week with only a 34% drop off this weekend. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse drops down to third place, taking another 12 million this weekend. No Hard Feelings is in fourth place, taking 7.8 million. And Transformers Rise of the Beasts holds into fifth place with 7.35 million. New release this week, Ruby Gilman, had a very disappointing start with 5.5 million, putting it into sixth place. Just ahead of Little Mermaid, which adds another 5 million to its total. The Flash has dropped all the way down to eighth place, taking only 5.2 million this weekend. It looks like the Speed Force has run dry on this one. Here in the UK, pretty much more of the same. Indiana Jones, obviously straight into the top spot, 5.4 million. Not the strongest of openings, taking the two days of previews at 7.1 million for the weekend. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse takes another 1.5 million. Ruby Gilman opens in third place with 884,000. The Little Mermaid holds into fourth place with 837,000. And Wes Anderson's Asteroid City takes fifth place with 797,000. Indiana Jones's worldwide opening is a disappointing 130 million. For a high-budgeted movie, it's not a strong start, but there is the hope that the positive word of mouth that's coming from the public who are watching it might do what Elemental seems to be doing at the moment with the US. Elemental so far worldwide, and it's still not opened in most international territories, is on 187 million, recovered slightly from its rather underwhelming start. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse has passed the 600 million mark, now on 607 million. Transformers Rise of the Beasts looks like it's about to end its run, with a worldwide figure of 381 million. Little Mermaid has crossed over the 500 million mark. Not the huge disappointment that everyone was predicting, but still not quite what you need from a film that had quite a high budget. And The Flash, worldwide, 245 million. It's still not recovered its budget. It's got a long way to go if it's going to be profitable. I don't think it's going to make it somehow. So one thing that we can pick up from the box office is that Indiana Jones has had a soft opening, not a terrible opening, but a soft opening. And Elemental, which is now on its third weekend in the US, is holding over quite well because, and I'm, I'm hoping we'll see this with Indiana Jones as well, the public word of mouth is actually quite positive about it. After all, oh, the critics good. were scathing both of these films at Cannes because these are not the films that you take to Cannes. The general critics got hold of it and lifted the score up a bit, but not enough because all the negative critics from Cannes had still dragged it down. But the public vote seems to be working in its favour. People are watching Elemental and then going, you know what? It's actually one of the best Pixar films that there's been. It's got a lot of heart to it. It's a bit muddled, but it's really joyful. 
and Indiana Jones, I've heard a lot of praise of people coming out of the cinema this week while I've been at work, and pretty much everyone is like, you know what? That was okay. That was okay. I'm hoping we're at a time where the word of mouth will actually keep things going, because let's be honest, the flash isn't. And the word of mouth <laughs> well, for no, that... It's, it's completely run out of energy on that one. Even though most people who've watched it have kind of enjoyed the film, everyone goes, it's good, but... And adds in all the problems that the film has. Whereas with Indiana Jones, we're not seeing that. We're just seeing people going, you know what? That's good. And uh, Elemental, you know what? That's good. So they might have some legs. Although how they're going to fare in the coming weeks when they've got going to be up against things like Mission Impossible, Barbie, Oppenheimer, I don't know. Let's wait and see. Um, I'm hoping, fingers crossed for Indiana Jones, we're going to talk about it in our reviews in a short while. So um, that's the box office. Andy. I guess we'll start the news with the big casting news for this week. James Gunn's uh, DCU has finally announced its leads, its leads for Superman and its leads for Lois Lane. Names that have been mentioned and banded around for the last couple of weeks. Um, it seems to be that whoever was leaking this information was up the right avenue. Mm -hmm. And we have a new Man of Steel. The funniest thing I did see on, on Twitter, though, was he looks just like Henry Cavill. Yep. <laughs> He's got a lot of similarities in looks to Henry Cavill, including physique. And people are saying that this guy isn't big enough to play Superman. But they forget that when he was cast, Henry Cavill didn't look that big. And neither did Christopher Reeve. There's this thing called, you know, training and exercise that they all go yeah. on before get they actually uh, get in the costumes. The, the casting went to David Sweat, who you might recognise from Hollywood or Pearl, um, who stepped into the lead as Clark Kent. And Rachel Br Brosnahan from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is playing Lois Lane. She is marvellous in that role. I don't know if you've watched The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but she's fantastic. I mean, every scene that she's in, she steals it. Yeah, great bits of casting. Uh, again, I've read on online, though, she doesn't. she's not pretty enough to play Lois Lane. And then oh. I think she's got a kind of a... A Margot Kidder vibe looking at uh, the yeah. photograph that's in front of me right now. She has that ditziness that you need for Lois Lane and the determined reporter aspect as well. Uh, a, a great casting for both of them. Margot Kidder's my Lois Lane. As much as I love Amy Adams and I had a lot of hope for Amy Adams in the role, she was completely unmemorable and had no impact on the films at all that she was in. She was a waste of a good talent as a Lois Lane. Hopefully we'll get that fiery spirited Lois Lane in this new telling because it's going back to the comics. James Gunn has been talking about the approach that they're doing with the DC films. And he's very clear that he want, he's aware of the public fatigue to the laziness that he sees pervades the genre at the moment. And he wants to avoid the tropes and the formula. In his words, we're going to be very careful with the product that we put out and making sure everything is as good as it can possibly be. People have gotten really lazy with their superhero stories. They've gotten to the place where, oh, it's a superhero. Let's make a movie about it. And then, oh, let's make a sequel because the first one did pretty well. What they're not thinking about is why is this story special? What makes this story stand apart from other stories? What is the story at the heart of it all? Why is this character important? And what makes this story different that it feel, fills a need for people in theatres to go and see? He's very clear that he doesn't want to just churn out sequel, 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 sequel. He wants there to be a reason for every film to exist. He won't just... I mean, we saw it with Guardians of the Galaxy. Each one of those films told a different core story of like relationships family family emotions father-son relationships in the second one the forming a family from the group of friends that you grow with the every part of the films made each one stand on its own feet 
and not rely on the previous films. So this is kind of what we expect from Gunn. Now we're going to be keeping an eye out to see what casting happens on the side characters for Superman Legacy. Obviously, the next next up for the casting table is Lex Luthor and Jimmy Olsen. They're the two prime roles. And some speculation has already started that one of the shortlist for Clark Kent might un- end up being tested for Luthor off the back of this, and that's okay. Nicholas Holt. I see Nicholas Holt more as Lex Luthor than I do as than I would have seen him as, yeah. as Clark Kent and Superman. I, I think he could he could do evil scientist, uh, and again put a different slant on on Lex Luthor. I, I don't know who I'd, I'd cast. I mean, I'm, I'm you know every every fan has some fan casting in their head i haven't for superman i'm just i'm I'm enjoying what's being presented i in fact i Mm. sent you a little clip i don't know if you had a chance to see it from the tv Mm. series and then how good the casting was for superman and lois yep i think that kind of gets overlooked a little bit and to some extent again great great lois and clark casting you mentioned that coven sweat looks similar to henry cavill and that's got people speculating that maybe sometime down the line there'll be a kingdom come kind of approach with an older Superman, which gives him the option mm. to open the door and let Cavill back. I think it'll be a cheap gimmick to do it, but at this at this point in time, my eyes are on twenty twenty five to get us back to a Superman that I can believe in. Yes, not that Henry Cavill was was poor in the role; it was just the way the character was written. Anyway, talking yes. of casting, let's head over to the Marvel verse. Fantastic Four. Everything we've said so far about the Fantastic Four, we have said, make sure there's a huge rock-sized uh, piece of salt ready to chip away at. But the latest rumour is that Vanessa Kirby has been offered the part of Sue Storm. Now, when you hear a rumour that says offered, doesn't mean that the actor or actress involved has actually said yes. Um, offers go out all the time. So Vanessa Kirby, we both thought, great choice. It sort of puts an end to Margot Robbie mm. allegedly passed on the role as reportedly has Adam Driver, who potentially priced himself out of the role of Reed Richards. Still, and this again is only pure speculation and rumour, David Diggs is still said to be the front runner to play Ben Grimm, the thing, but nothing, yes, it's a pun, is set in stone as yet. And interesting news about Johnny Storm. And again, Start chipping away at that, that big, huge <laughs> rock of salt. Joseph Quinn, who played Eddie Munson in Stranger Things Season 4, is in the running to play Johnny Storm. The film we do know is to be directed by Matt Shackman, who dropped Star Trek to do this from a script by Jeff Kaplan and Ian Springer. All of these rumours that are going out, like Lee said, pinch of salt, because they're not coming from verified sources, just an unnamed person inside. Yeah. But all of this could get thrown into disarray should the strikes continue even further. Yeah. Quick strike updates. There's no further movement on the Writers Guild strike again. However, the SAG-AFTRA situation, the negotiations were supposed to have ended on June the 30th. But over the past week, a lot of prominent names within the Screen Actors Guild have been making it very clear they don't want to take any simple deal. And if SAG-AFTRA don't look after them with this, they will strike regardless. And so the talks have been extended to the July the 12th to try to iron out some things. Uh, Lengthy meetings have already taken place. But even so, the the two sides of the negotiation apparently remain far apart on some key issues. The union could still call for a strike if the talks break down. And we know that they've already voted to say, if the talks break down, we will all strike. And it was 98% of actors voted in favour of it, if I remember correctly. Should a strike occur, it will halt everything. All scripted film and TV production that's not already being shut down because of the writer's strike. And also some overseas productions will get affected at the same time. SAG-AFTRA's 
looking for gains in AI protections, streaming residuals, and along with strengthening their pension and health plans. So another week and a half of wondering whether or not next year is going to have any releases at all, because (laughs) if they strike, next year is going to look quite vacant. Yeah, nothing uh, looking like clear skies at the moment. And from everything I've heard, solutions seem even further away. So yes, it's not looking positive, but that might all change. Not that any of that is stopping things from still going into production as of now. And 93-year-old filmmaker and all-time screen legend Clint Eastwood has been spotted in Georgia directing and producing his next film, Jorah Number 2, which many are expecting to be his final film since back in April, he said that he wanted to do one last project in order to ride off into the sunset with his head held high. The film stars, person we've just been speaking about, Nicholas Holt, who can be seen in some of the shots that have been taken from the set. Tony Collette is in there, Keith Sutherland, Leslie Bibb and Zoe Dutch. And it, it's got a bit of 12 angry men to it. Okay. It's during a murder trial. One of the jurors is a man named Justin Kemp who has a serious moral dilemma. He realises that he actually killed the victim in a reckless driving accident. Oh, like that idea. And now he must work out how to sway the jury verdict to save the innocent defendant without incriminating himself at the same time. I'm there for that. That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, Clint Eastwood is is a, a even though he's, I think some of the recent work he's, he's chosen to do has been poor, his direction never is. He's a solid mm. director and his trick is he keeps it lean and he tells the stories it's written. So, yeah, that sounds a a particularly intriguing idea. That's my kind of a setup. Yeah, courtroom dramas, but with like a a fresh, new, intriguing premise behind it. I'm in. I'm in. Um, You're a huge fan of the next film because we are eagerly awaiting Dune Part 2. However, it has been confirmed that there's going to be a Dune Part 3, which will adapt the second book in Frank Herbert's saga, Dune Messiah. What do we know, Andy? What do we know? As a fan of the books, I know what the story will be, but I don't want to talk about that until June Part 2 has come out because I think it'll be unfair because it kind of gives a bit of spoilers. We do know that Villeneuve said that he would he would love to have had three films. It was initially commissioned for two, and he said that if they get the green light for the third film, it will be June Messiah because that's the final part of Paul Atreides' story. Once all the conflict okay. of June has played out, that's his final thing before it moves to Children of June which is okay. It doesn't need to be adapted Children of Dune later on. Maybe that would make a TV series. Definitely stop before you get to God Emperor of Doom because that was terrible. Okay. But yeah, to know that Villeneuve's going to get a chance to tell what he wanted to tell, the first and second book, which is the Paul Atreides story, that's all that I need to know. And I am well and truly happy for that. A lot of this green lighting has probably come off the back of the very positive response that the trailer campaign's been having. There was the initial trailer that we were both gushing over, and this past week there's been a new trailer which landed, and boy, it looks even better. It absolutely sells it. At the same time, over in the TV world, the Dune the Sisterhood series for Max has now cast Olivia Williams from The Crown and Jodie Mayer from The Witcher in the roles of Tula Harkonnen, and Natalia. This replaces Shirley Henderson and Indira Varma, who recently had to step away due to scheduling issues. And in addition, Anne Forrester, who is behind Lou, will direct multiple episodes, including the premiere, taking over from Johan Renk, who exited the project earlier this year. So it's it's all all go with June, assuming the strike doesn't get in the way. Here's news that um, you just look at me baffled as I talk through it. Mortal Kombat (laughs) news. Okay. 
and all I know, Andy, I'm going to surprise you. All I know is going to be very Johnny Cage centric. <laughs> yes, we know that it's going to focus a lot on that character, but we now know that fan favorite character Baraka will appear in the sequel. Is Kano in it? Because didn't Kano die at the end of the last one? Yeah, Kano died at the end of that last one. So, of course, he's in it because this is Mortal Kombat and no one stays yeah. dead. They always get resurrected from hell or what other whatever dimension they go to but baraka for those who don't know we've had it confirmed because there's a snap from set by the producer todd garner showing a set chair with baraka on the back of it which confirms that the tarkaton villain character who is basically a monstrous fanged fighter with blades up his arms and very little in the way of dialogue is going to be in the film i don't think there's going to be any casting for this it'll probably just be a stunt person or one of the fighters under prosthetics because it doesn't need a particular name behind it. In the Lord of Mortal Kombat, Baraka is the general of the Tarkatan Horde. He's ever loyal to the villainous Emperor Shao Kahn. He's got long retractable Tarkatan blades that extend from his forearms and he kicks butt and I can't wait. And this film's going to be awesome and you're probably going to hate every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, talking of things that people might hate and might not hate, uh, Rebel Moon, there were some images released this week. And did we not discuss, and I don't think we did, is that Anthony Hopkins is voicing one of the characters. Yeah, he's voicing one of the droids, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, I think we mentioned it way back when the initial word on this was happening because we kind of went, Anthony Hopkins? What? Yeah, images we've seen. We still need to see a proper trailer. We still need to see, you know, something to give us a taste of it. Netflix ran uh, a little clip episode of, of up-and-coming work and they showed some behind-the-scenes work of it. But uh, Anthony Hopkins has been cast, voice only, as Robot Jimmy, who, according to Zack Snyder, is on a journey of self-discovery. It doesn't look very Star Warsy to say that this was originally uh, Zack Snyder's pitch for a Star Wars movie from the images and the very, very short clips that I've seen. He seems to have created his own universe with a very particular look, a very sort of slightly down-to-earth look, and I don't mean that negatively. Yeah, a grounded look is what he goes for. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. I'm still interested. As long as he, as long as he never plays in the DC universe again, I'll be happy watching Zack Snyder's things. But as we know from um, Army of the Dead, only ever watch them once because you made the mistake of watching Army of the <laughs> yes. Dead twice and <laughs> you're never getting that love for that you had that first time round back. No. Community update. It's oh, been yes, nearly please. a year since they announced that it was getting a movie. Nearly a year. And nothing's happened yet. But Rick and Morty co-creator Dan Harmon has been saying over the past week that they do intend to start shooting once the ongoing strike actions have finished and all the cast, aside from Chevy Chase, are now definitely on board. Donald Glover's back, which is great. We're shooting it next summer. Donald Glover's coming back and that's really important. Well, the fact that we even got Donald to do it, that was the big piece. But I think everyone's coming back so far. We're pretty good. And I think that will happen. If not, then, you know, Donald will be there. See, it'll just be Donald. It'll be just an episode of Atlanta. <laughs> McHale added that everyone's coming back, which um, the obvious question of whether Nick, Nicole Brown was going to be coming back, coming back as Shirley is answered with that one. It is literally just Chevy Chase is the only name that no one's talking about. I'd love to see Chevy Chase come back. Because of valid reasons. Yeah, well, yeah, I know there are valid <laughs> reasons. It was apparently, allegedly... Uh, just in case Chevy's listening, that he, yeah, not not particularly a nice guy, but he was so funny on the show. <laughs> uh, I would love yeah. to see Chevy Chase come by, but hey, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But as a huge fan of Community, as certainly the first three seasons, it was pure genius. Um, I've just heard that uh, they're recasting the voice for Rick and Morty. And also for yep. the other show with Justin Rowland, which is Solar Opposites. And I'm being told that Dan Stevens is replacing 
on that one. Can't see how that's going to work. I'm a huge fan of Solar Opposites, but mm. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm certainly not sure. Tron updates. Jodie Turner-Smith from Re- Without Remorse and Greta Lee from Past Lives have joined Tron Aries for Disney. They joined Jared Leto and Evan Peters in the film, which is being directed by Joaquin Ronick, who gave us Dead Men Tell No Tales, the Pirates of the Caribbean film. The new film will reportedly focus on the emergence of Ares, a sentient AI program that crosses over into the human world that is not ready for that kind of contact. Leto will play the human manifestation of that program because, of course, he would be the perfect casting for a computer AI that is out of out of its depth. <laughs> <laughs> when you said out of his depth, I, I couldn't help but smile at the, shall we say, the subtle dig at one Jared Leto. <laughs> Yes. Greta Lee will play the video game programmer and tech company CEO who aims to protect her world-changing technology. Specifics of Turner Smith's role are under wraps. I know we've waited ages for Tron 3, and I know it's not the Tron 3 that we were initially promised because so long has gone on since Tron Legacy. But I'll be happy if every 10 years or so we get another Tron film to just, you know, push it ahead as our technology moves on and tell a tale linking to our current modern society. And this is drawing on the use of AIs. It's enhancing or threatening the world around us. I thought it would make a great entry into Disney Plus rather than a big screen version. I know it was originally touted to just be for Disney Plus. But it is looking more and more likely that they're aiming, aiming big with it. Okay, well, I've got a segue then from talking about Disney Plus because Dan Trachtenberg, who brought us Prey that landed on Disney Plus here in the UK at least, mm. is to direct an episode of Stranger Things for season five whenever that happens. Futurama season 11 marks the return for the animated futuristic series after 10 years. Because mm. it's always been repeated, it's, it's one of those shows where you don't feel it's ever gone away. You just away. didn't realise it stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Warrior Nun has confirmed the series will return after Netflix axed it. So that's going elsewhere, if you're a fan of Warrior Nun. And this is intriguing. The Famous Five is being adapted <laughs> from all people. Nicholas Winding Refn. For those who know of The Famous Five. Julian, Dick and Anne, George and Timmy the dog. Yeah. Um, it was Enie <laughs> Blyton, a pastoral adventures, very quaint Englishness to it. Small dogs, incredibly outdated. However, it seems as though Redfern is bringing several of Blyton's famous five stories to the screen for the BBC. A match made in heaven? Wait and see. Unless, of course, they're going to go somewhere very different with it. A complete reimagining. Always hated. Always hated the famous five books. <laughs> I used to love them. I used to love them as a kid. I used to absolutely love them. Oh, boy. Oh, God. You know, there were people who read them <laughs> who passed around and absolutely. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> They're not books that I've ever read since I grew up. Uh, you know, once I got into my teens, those things disappeared by the wayside and I have no intention to go back to them because sometimes you have to accept that childish things are just childish. And I'm, t- and, and I'm saying that to all you Harry Potter fans who still lavish over the books. Seriously, grow up, guys. There's better fiction out there. <laughs> That's me just alienating half of our audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to be more similar to Valhalla Rising than it is any anything else. We'll yeah, see. let's see. Spider-Verse, Beyond the Spider-Verse, might be delayed. There's been recent reveals that many of the animators weren't happy with the working conditions and the pressure during the making of the recent film, which was described as constantly changing ideas and a sometimes toxic environment, with them working 12-hour days at least, seven days a week, in the cram time 
of the year leading up to the film coming out. Amy Pascal chirped in with a response that basically said, welcome to the movie making business, which showed absolutely no regard for the complaints that the animators were saying. But producers Phil Lord and Chris Miller have now kind of responded whilst out promoting season two of The After Party. Lord responded saying, I'd just like to say that we're going to take the time necessary to make Beyond the Spider-Verse great. Miller then added, and we won't back into a release date that doesn't fit. So despite the fact that it's already been shoehorned in for March next year, this is suggesting that they're saying, you know what, we're not committed to that date. That shouldn't be out there. We'll let you know when it's ready. And I'm more than fine with that. I know I want that third part film now, but I'd like the animators to be treated fairly. I'd like it to be a healthy work environment and I'd like to get the best polished product that you can get. Yeah, it's quality that we're looking for over this end of the pond anyway. Yes. And uh, just to threaten people as well, Roland Emmerich (laughs) is threatening to return with a cross-media franchise that he titles Space Nation. Yes, he's not just going to come to the cinema screen for the three people who watch his films, but he's also wanting to tie it into a TV series and an online space opera game, and a series of animated shorts. Of course he is. Apparently this project is going to start as a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, similar to World of Warcraft, with players taking on the roles of ship captains embarking on epic journeys, and then everything else will spin off from that to tell stories. Now this was done before, about 15 years ago. I can't remember what the name of the series was. There was a TV series that there was a video game that tied into it, and events of the MMO game, how the players responded to things, fed through into how they would write the later episodes. I'm not sure what you're talking about, Andy. I'll have to uh, do some research. Yeah, I, I remember it happening. I remember it I remember it happening. I remember it getting to two seasons. I remember the game getting pl- canned. Um, <laughs> I remember playing the game. It wasn't very good. That's why it got canned. <laughs> uh, but it was a nice idea at the time. And this is just kind of an evolution of that kind of idea where you're blurring the lines between the different media. I think it's a great idea. Roland Emmerich, though, no. I'm sorry. His days went at the end of the 90s. So Andy mentioned the the very sad news that a body had been found. And now we have the confirmation that the talented, incredibly well-respected actor, Julian Sands, is dead, aged 65 and a great loss. We've sung his praises over the last few weeks as we've been waiting to know. But uh, now it has been confirmed. And of course, our deepest condolences to family and friends. And now the sad one. This was a shocker. It is hard. Oscar-winning actor, one of the the greats uh, of American actors for me, the wonderful Alan Arkin, has passed away aged 89. Uh, an actor whose career has spanned an impressive seven decades. Yeah, this news was confirmed by his sons, Adam, Matthew and Anthony, to People magazine this past week, offering a joint statement on the family's behalf, saying, Our father was a uniquely talented force of nature, both as an artist and a man, a loving husband, father, grand and great-grandfather. He was adored and will be deeply missed. Uh, He was not only an Oscar winner, he was a Golden Globe winner and a Tony-winning acting legend. He started his career with a brief stint in music before becoming a member of the famed Second City Improv Comedy Troupe. And that's where his whole progression into the Tony-winning performance in Enter Laughing and then the 1960s comedy um, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming before his breakout role in Wait Until Dark. This is someone who has been prominent throughout the decades. In This is something that we've spoken about a lot 
actors who maybe aren't leads, but they are solid support cast that always bring their A game and lift something and someone you look out for. And Alan Arkin was definitely one of those people. Absolutely. I mean, the the list is incredible, the work that he, uh, he gave us. So Catch-22, while a flawed film, he is the heart of it and, and turns into brilliant performance. There was an attempt to make a Pink Panther movie without Peter Sellers, which starred Alan Arkin as Inspector Clouseau. You can see him in riotously funny The In-Laws, uh, Glengarry, yeah. Glen Ross, So I Married an Axe Murderer. He's worked twice with Tim Burton, with Edward Scissorhands and uh, Dumbo. He's shone in The Rocketeer, a film that we must talk about because it is just wonderful. He had Oscar nominations, uh, and one for Little Miss Sunshine, which was brilliant. And he mentioned the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. And he was nominated again for a, a, a heart-wrenching film. If you ever get a chance to see it, it is brilliant. Uh, and he is so good in it. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which broke me when I first saw it and, and would find very difficult to go back and watch because it is such an emotional film. He was in Gattaca, Slums of Beverly Hills, uh, Sunshine Cleaning. He appeared in Get Smart. He made an appearance in The Muppets. He was supposed to have the role in Ocean's Eleven that went to Carl Reiner. Uh, he appeared recently in Argo, a, an amazing actor, one that I absolutely, any time would see Alan Arkin mentioned in the cast list, would know that I'm going to get a fantastic, fantastic performance. Uh, sadly, sadly missed. Really is one of those ends of an era. Yeah, very sad loss. You've, you've listed off a huge chunk of films there. That uh, Did you mention Gross Point Blank as well? I didn't know where he played the psychiatrist. Yes. And as much as I hate the film, this was a prime example of one person who makes some scenes worth watching. Marley and me, I don't like that film, but Alan Arkin's in there and he's a joy because he always brought his A-game. A yes. real sad loss, but he leaves behind a decades-long career of great films. Absolutely brilliant. Um, sad loss, an absolute sad loss. And that, folks, is the news for this week. You're listening to The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks presented by, well, some film geeks. And Andy, it's come to my attention. And I'm slightly disappointed that people are still not subscribing to this particular show, nor are they telling all their friends apart from some of the good people in Australia, clearly because we are in the top 50 most listened to podcasts in Australia. Hi, Australia. Hi, Australia. Come on, guys. If you've not subscribed, please do so. And remember to hit a like and leave a comment and, and send us send us anything you want to talk about in the oeuvre of geekdom. Keep in touch. Drop us a line. You can find us on so many different platforms, so it's not particularly hard. Andy, how can they find us? Pop onto whatever social media channel you want to use. Search for Film File UK. You should see us on there. If you can't, we're not on everything, but we are on predominantly Facebook, Mastodon, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us directly. Just email the show, podcast at filmfile.uk. Thoughts, suggestions, films you want us to look at, responses to the films that we've spoken about. How do you feel about them? We always love to hear your opinions. It's not just about me and Lee having disagreements. We like to disagree with you as well. <laughs> I don't disagree with anybody. <laughs> Get in touch and drop us a line and keep in touch with the film file. And as we said, tell your friends, because the bigger we can make the film file, the more we can do. Let's move on, because now we're going to talk about this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. 
As you may know, as fellow film geeks, this week saw the release of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the fifth in the Indiana Jones series. But let's go back. Let's go way back to where it all started with Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark it is something that man was not meant to disturb. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. Indiana Jones! Let her go. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? So yes, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the 1981 action-adventure film directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Lawrence Kasdan, based on a story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman. What can we say about Raiders of the Lost Ark that you probably don't already know? The film stars Harrison Ford as Indy, Indiana Jones. He, a globe-trotting archaeologist, who is vying with Nazi Germans to recover the famed, legendary, long-lost Ark of the Covenant, which is said to make an army invincible. Indy teams up with his former love interest, Marion Ravenwood, played with delightful charm by Karen Allen. And it's a race to stop rival archaeologist René Belloc, uh, played with glee by Paul Freeman from letting the Nazis take the Ark and all of its power. That's it. There's nothing more to be said. It's like trying to describe Star Wars. But this is a film that looked initially like it was going to underperform. The big film that was expected from 1981 was going to be Superman 2. As good as Superman 2 is, we're still talking and still have vested interest in Indiana Jones. Why? Why, Andy? It just hit the public consciousness in such a great way. I mean, Indiana Jones is just a throwback to those like 30s and 40s serials that used to be split into 10-minute segments uh, before your main features, or they were shown as Saturday morning serials at cinemas for youngsters. We got to see them growing up in the 70s on TV as the Saturday morning serials. The idea came from Lucas and Spielberg. When Star Wars was opening, they had this thing that whenever one of their films was opening, they both went on holiday together to get away from the box office buzz and avoid all the news. And so they were hiding from the box office reception to Star Wars because Lucas was worried that this was going to flop for him. And they were just chatting. And Spielberg had commented that he'd, he'd love to make a Bond film or a Bond-like film. And then Lucas turned around and says, what about action-adventure serials like we used to watch as a kid? And started pitching this idea that had been going through his head for years of, you know, a heroic whip-wielding adventurer searching for like ancient treasures and you know mystic items and they just bashed over the weekend that they were away from the box office they bashed out this idea and then when they returned back home they sat down with Lovens Kasdan and fleshed out what is just a perfect representation of everything that made those serials work just done in long form one single movie it's got great casting it's got charm great story it's got good chemistry between all the characters involved in there. It's got fantastic set pieces. Yeah, directed with a plum by uh, Spielberg. And it's got that score. It's got possibly one of the best John Williams scores that there's been. As iconic as the rest of his work, as iconic as uh, Star Wars, as iconic as Jaws, as iconic as, as Superman, 
you hear that piece of music and it, it takes you to this movie and, and the subsequent films. So George Lucas conceived Raiders of the Lost Ark way back in 1973, uh, shortly after finishing his, his, I wouldn't say it's his debut film, but his debut breakthrough film, which was American Graffiti, a film that we should talk about. He saw an old movie poster of an heroic character leaping from a horse to a truck and it reminded Lucas of the uh, um, serials that Andy's mentioned which also were a huge influence on Star Wars, Book Rogers and uh, Flash Gordon. But these were things like Spy Smasher, Zorro's Fighting Legion, Don Winslow of the Navy. And he wanted to make a B-movie modeled on those serials and conceived initially the adventures of Indiana Smith, uh, mm. featuring a, a famous adventurous archaeologist who he'd named after his, after his dog. Lucas did that, named a lot of characters after dogs. <laughs> so while he was trying to get Flash Gordon made, he couldn't obtain the rights. He shelved the idea for Indiana Smith uh, to focus on creating his own space opera, which ultimately became Star Wars. But Lucas discussed his serial idea with other filmmaker and friend, Philip Kaufman, who brought us the uh, exceptional remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And the two of them basically fleshed out this idea of a character who's a college professor and archaeologist adventurer. And Kaufman brought elements that Smith was a nightclub patron and a womanizer. And he was the one who suggested the Ark of the Covenant as the film's central goal. He learned the art from his childhood dentist, of all people, and provided the source of the conflicts between the Nazis and Indiana Smith. Lucas wanted Kaufman to direct the film. He had to move on because he was working on The Outlaw Josie Wales. And then, again, another film we should talk about. Pause the idea, resumed on Star Wars. And then, as Andy put it, Spielberg wanted to direct a James Bond film and Lucas pitched him. The Adventures of Indiana Smith. Indiana Smith was also a nod to Steve McQueen's character in Nevada Smith. That's right. But they changed it to Indiana Jones, which I think I think works a lot better when you think about it. Although if we had been watching Indiana Smith Adventures for all these years, we'd say Indiana Jones would have been a stupid That yeah, sounds bland. <laughs> the structure of this film, it's a, this is a perfect summertime blockbuster, but it's a smart one as well. You have that opening section that has really no relevance to the main story. It's just like to get you hooked in straight away with who Indiana Jones is. And each of the films has done this. It's always had something as a setup beforehand. That, like the previous adventure, really, isn't it? Yeah. The previous movie, the ending of the previous movie. Yeah, to, to roll you over into it. And then it, it slows down significantly. But you're already on board because you've just seen him running away from a giant boulder and then like running to a river and flying away as some uh, pygmies start firing darts at him. You're already completely thrilled by that point. So when it slows down to tell you the background of the Ark of the Covenant and the mystery of finding it and what it can do, you're happy for it to let you take a breather before it ramps into more action. And it's the way that it stages all the action scenes so perfectly to not overdo it and always have that breathing space between to lead you towards that finale with the gruesome and gloriously over-the-top deaths that take place, which watching as a child, it felt like you're watching something that you shouldn't be watching. It's funny enough, I talked about this on, on, on BBC this week while talking about the new Indiana Jones film. There is a slightly gruesome side to it. People die, mm. characters die, people die sometimes quite nasty. I'm thinking of the uh, the fight on the um, Nazi plane. Yep. But it's it's even, there's elements of blood, but the, generally the film is bloodless. But Jones is a, a two-fisted character. Um, the image for Indiana Jones with the fedora and the leather jacket came from a movie with Charlton Heston. And, you know, it's, it's exactly the look. So much so 
that when you see the character in either uh, profile or silhouette or even a shadow, we know who we are looking at and it becomes uh, as much a part of the law of Indiana Jones. So it, much has been said that uh, Lawrence Kasdan came on board to write the script, that uh, Spielberg was finishing 1941, and a lot of the elements that were in the Raiders of the Lost Ark script made it into Temple of Doom, the, the next sequel. But even though this had both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg connected to it, due to the overschedule and the overbudget of 1941, this film didn't look to be initially a dead cert. All predictions for it were that it was going to be at the best, a moderate success. Because they were tapping into the serialised stories that decades before had finally died off. This would be similar to jumping on board and trying to release a Western now. Westerns have died a death. You try to do a huge blockbuster Western, you're not going to make money. Most Westerns now are low budget. And it was looked at as like, what are you guys doing? But everyone seemed to forget that, you know, George Lucas had just reinvigorated space epics with Star Wars only a few years earlier. This is the defining time for pushing summertime releases and pushing the blockbuster entertainment and showing that you can take an old idea and make it work for a new audience. I remember when this came out because back in these days, we had to wait like at least six months before we got it in the UK. Yeah. And so I knew about this film in advance of it coming out through the making of TV shows that were on BBC or ITV. And so, like, I already had seen images from this, and I knew that I had to see it. And they used to work a treat. Nowadays, I don't think we get that kind of marketing because everything's online and you just casually drop into it. But back then, you'd tune in at 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon because there was an ITV special behind the scenes of this new film that's coming out. And that made you want to see it even more. So much so that you went out and bought the bubblegum cards in advance of the film yes. coming out and knew the story before you went in. Uh, comic book adaptations, the, the absolute works. Harrison Ford, magnificent in this. He's He brings some of that like roguish Han Solo nature to it, but he's got his own personality. And he also did a huge chunk of the stunts himself, which I think helps sell a lot of the action sequences, at least until he injured his leg and um, didn't he tear a ligament in his left leg uh during the out of control airplay scene he, he seems to to damage himself in every single <laughs> film that he's done uh but yes uh, it, it is a it's a very physical role and, and and harrison ford brings a very certain kind of physicality to it as well as well as that laconic nature that ford has is, is part of indiana jones and it's impossible now to think of anybody else playing the role uh, and there were many actors mm. considered for it. Tim Matheson, Peter yeah. Coyote, uh, Jeff Bridges, Sam Elliott, uh, Harry Hamlin. And then it looked like there was going to be an Indiana Jones in the form of Tom Selleck. And he was he was in the lead, but he was contractually obligated to the television series Magnum P.I. Uh, and the pilot had landed and it was going to be made into a full series. It wasn't just one of those castings where they went, yeah, we'd like this guy, but Sp uh, Lucas and Spielberg were at the point of asking the show studio, CBS, to release him 10 days early from his contract mm. because they really wanted him. And CBS basically greenlit Magnum P.I., forcing him to drop out and leave the production with no lead actor in the role only weeks before filming. The 1980 actor strike later put the show on hiatus for three months, which would have allowed Selick, ironically, to star as Jones. But, of course, Spielberg saw The Empire Strikes Back and said, that's our Jones. And, of course, the rest is history. There's loads of stories of behind the scenes on it. 
not only Harrison Ford doing his own stunts and getting injured, but also the improvisation and like on sets, such as Indy's line to Marion on the ship, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage, was ad-libbed by Harrison Ford. There's the famous swinging swordsman who he just pulls his gun out and shoots him, which just seems so perfect. That was supposed to be a fully choreographed fight that goes down corridors and like alleyways, etc. Which you can see elements of that in the outtakes, which are available on the Blu-ray box set that you get to see some of that choreography that was supposed to be going on. But the whole cast and crew were ill because of something that they'd all eaten. And Ford was just not feeling it and just went, I've got a gun, why don't I just shoot him? And so they went, let's do it. And went, that works. The cast and crew getting ill. It was everyone except for Spielberg, if I remember correctly, because he was eating spaghetti hoops while everyone else was eating local food. (laughs) (laughs) You you can't talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, though, without the chemistry, both on screen and within the characters of Jones's love interest. Marion and that role went to the great Karen Allen. Lucas wanted Deborah Winger. She wasn't interested. Uh, Spielberg wanted his girlfriend, Amy Irving, uh, she of Carrie, but wasn't available. Others that were considered were Stephanie Zimbalist, Barbara Hershey, Sean Young. Sean Young has been in the nearly <laughs> runs for so many films that we, we talked about it with Batman. But Spielberg was aware of Karen Allen from her performance, scene stealing performance in Animal House, uh, being able to portray an independent female character that has has a, a fragile side to her as well as the confidence and also has a, it just Karen Allen just charms the screen yeah. in everything that she's in. My favourite film of hers is, is Starman. And it's just that perfect casting, which has held a shadow over the Indiana Jones character right through to the final film. Yeah, uh, the, the chemistry between the pair of them on screen is absolute fire. There's a sizzling intensity between all the exchanges between them. And the character of Marion Ravenwood isn't just your standard damsel in distress. She's feisty. She fights her own corner. She's absolutely one of the best female characters in like Hollywood adventure films of all time. Uh, around them, I mean, you mentioned the supporting cast, Paul Freeman as Belloc is magnificent. Whether he ate that fly or not is another kind of urban legend on one of the scenes when a fly seems to go into his mouth and he doesn't seem to react. There has been reports that it was actually two different takes that were spliced together perfectly and the fly actually darted off on one of them. It just looks like he eats it. We don't know, but I like the idea that he was so intense in his acting, he ate a fly while delivering the line. <laughs> John Reese davis um, which is a playing a, a role that would get frowned upon in a modern era, but he managed to get away with it in the more recent film because he's already been established for blackfacing up to play like someone from Egypt. But you know what? We were fine with it back then, and he's great in it. And then you've got Ronald Lacey, who is possibly one of the sweetest men in film. Everything else that he'd ever been in, he was always like very simple, very like, oh, unassuming. And he plays the absolutely despicable character of the sadistic Gestapo agent, Tote. And he's perfect he he has that peter laurie quality to him and that's why spielberg cast him apparently he's he, he came across as in a very peter laurie like he's unassuming he's quiet and composed and he also brings one of the best laughs at the point in the desert tent when he walks in on them as they're drinking and fr- like frolicking and she's ready to like take the knife and he takes out what looks like a, a really sinister weapon and starts undoing it and turns it into a coat hanger and puts his coat up. Brilliant and so well played. Apparently that whole scene was added in during shooting to explain why Marion suddenly starts wearing girly clothes towards the back end of the film right. because she wasn't very girly. So they decided on set is like, we need to have a scene to tie this together. So they constructed that whole scene 
and it works a treat. There's a lot of improvisation went on on set with this film. And I think it works because all the way through, they were creating new ideas to tell the story in the best way possible. And it's the perfect, like, it's the perfect combination of everyone involved really doing it for everything, everything for the right reasons, delivering utter perfection. It had an interesting box office run. Uh, initially opened as the number one film of the weekend in the US ahead of Clash of the Titans and History of the World Part One. And then it fell to the number three position in its second weekend. A decline of only 4%, but that put it behind uh, the debut of Cannonball Run and Superman 2. By its fourth week, Raiders began climbing the box office charts again, reached the number one position with a gross of 7.3 million behind Superman's twos, 10.9 million. In its sixth week, it regained the number one position again. And in some cinemas, the film played for an entire year. Mm. Such was the cultural impact of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It finished its final international run with a budget of 20 million, taking 389 million. This film was such a success that obviously it was going to generate sequels. So the film was, of course, a, a huge success, and that always means that there were going to be sequels. The first sequel, uh, Temple of Doom, was set several years before Raiders of the Lost Ark, so we didn't have Marion in it. It was met with, well, in the UK, it got edited heavily because of uh, on-screen violence. It was met with sort of middling reviews. Uh, it was a lot mm. darker story. It had set pieces which were held over from the original script of Raiders of the Lost Ark, including the uh, running with the gong, where Indy's hiding behind it, and also the fact of the escape through the mines. It seems yeah. to have as of recently, because Quentin Tarantino says it's the best of the Indiana Jones saga, it's found a, a new lease of life with those who, I mean, it still did incredibly well, but it, it, it's been readdressed, shall we say. Yeah, it's gained appreciation in the years that followed. I remember enjoying it when I was younger, but Raiders was the better film. There's more of a playful energy to Temple of Doom, even though it goes darker with like the ritual sacrifices and like the clutching hearts out of people's chests, Mola Ram and all that sinister stuff. But the action sequences, I mean, the opening section with the song and dance number leading into that fight sequence and escape has a playfulness to it. It introduced the world to Ki Hu Kwan in his first starring role as Short Round. And I don't think that Kate Capshaw's Willy character is a stronger female presence as Marion Ravenwood was because we have a typical damsel in distress who really is only there to scream and get into scrapes. Whereas with Marion Ravenwood, we had more reason for her to exist. This is your generic action-adventure film. Whereas Raiders kind of pushed what action-adventure films could be, this goes back to just be cliche tropes and the generic aspects. The film is banned in India because it, they don't think it reflects their society in a very positive way. And I can kind of see that. And overall, there's moments in this film that work, but unfortunately it's bogged down by just not not quite living up to what you expect. Do have to say that um, um, Amish Puri, who plays Mola Ram, is one of the most sinister looking villains of my childhood. And apparently, chantings of Maro Maro Soko, Chamdi Nocho Pilo Kun literally translates from Hindi to kill, kill the pig, flay his skin, drink his blood, which is the chant from Lord of the Flies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's an interesting bit of trivia for you there. <laughs> So then we got a narrative sequel of sorts to Raiders, and that was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, released in 1989. Uh, it served what we were all led to believe as the final film. It had, of course, great casting with Sean Connery 
as the role of Indy's father, not only a physical casting, but a spiritual casting to say that Spielberg always wanted to do a James Bond movie. Uh, And this was much better received by the critics. And in fact, so much so that Spielberg has said that the film was in part an apology for the reception to Temple of Doom. And it looked like that that's where we were going to end. It's a lot of fun. And the chemistry between Sean Connery and Harrison Ford is is fantastic. And if you want to imagine this sort of spiritual connection between James Bond and Indiana Jones, then this is the film to do it in. The opening section with River Phoenix with a young Indiana Jones is a marvellous opening section. It's the origin story, isn't it, really? Yeah. I, you know, it spun off the idea of the young Indiana Jones Chronicles off the back of how well that went down. And the supporting cast of Julian Glover as Donovan and Alison Doody as Elsa. Again, you've got villains and also female leads who bring something different than just the generic aspects. The Nazis are back as the bad guys. It's back to looking for like strange mythical objects that can bring immense power for Hitler. The only thing that it does let itself down with didn't need the Alexi Sale cameo. Yeah, which I guess the Americans would never would have got. Yeah, but it's a story in this one that is so perfect that the video game adaptation of it pretty much retains every clue, every puzzle, and the whole structure of the following of the puzzle to get the Holy Grail and a lot of the dialogue. And most video game adaptations divert off or add things in and like enhance around, but this was so perfect that it works a treat. The interplay between Ford and Connery in this film as well is as good as the interplay between Ford and Alan were in the first film. It brings the heart. And at the point at which he thinks he's gone over the cliff edge and he says, I thought I lost you, boy. You're ready to start blubbing. So by the time he gets to the moment when he actually calls him Indiana, that's when the tears flow. That's yeah, when it earns it, doesn't it? It earns everything. Let's jump ahead to 2008 and the fourth film, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Features the return of Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood. Introduces Sheila Booth as her and Indy's son. And the setting moved from the 1930s to the 1950s. So on paper, this was starting to look very, very interesting. And I remember as we read about it, getting close to release, this seemed like an interesting divergence. Indy against Russians to recover a crystal skull. And then this film really polarised both critics and fans. I remember on the run-up to this, I was hopeful for it. And like Spielberg had been saying in interviews, is like they want to keep it, CGI is going to be to a minimal, and he, he wants it to like be done with practical effects wherever they can. Turns out that wherever they can meant five minutes, and CGI to a minimal meant the other two hours. <laughs> it starts off with a CGI prairie dogs popping its head out of the ground, and just gets worse from that point onwards. I will, I will say the good points. Karen Allen's back, and boy... Yes. She's still great. She still has it at this point, and she just brings something. But she's only back towards the back end of the film. Kate Blanchett, who's normally great, can't decide what accent to go with. And Ray Winston just gets in the way and gets annoying pretty early on in the film. It feels much like, and I rewatched this this week with fresh eyes, hoping to rediscover something. Because I'm seeing a load of people online saying they actually think that this is really good. And all I can say is, like, whatever those people are smoking, pass it over here man because it still doesn't live up every problem that i had with it when i first saw it is still a problem the over-reliance on cgi the usually effective spielberg action moments lack the spark and energy they're still kind of good and indeed they're the best things in here but the jungle scene in particular looked particularly awful bad editing 
the jungle scene again has that moment and i spotted this on my first watch and i, I watched for it this time to make sure that i hadn't mistakenly misremembered something there's a scene in the jungle when Kate Blanchett is ahead of them in the Jeep and Mutt says, they're getting away. And then on the very next shot, Kate Blanchett's Jeep is behind them, trying to catch up with them for some reason. And it's like, but she's getting away from them. Why is she now behind them? Did she just think that was too easy and decide to circle back? I don't know. You've got the character of Mutt Williams itself. Shayla Booth, who clearly doesn't care. And the naming of him being Mutt, because, you know, Indiana was named after the dog. So let's go with Mutt. <laughs> no. <laughs> the living plot device of John Hurt's character, Oxley, who just spouts out clues when they're needed in order to push the story along. There's no progression of story. It's just whenever it needs to move to the next scene, Oxley just goes, three times you fall, and they fall down three waterfalls and go, oh, this must be where we're supposed to be. It's awful writing, but this is because multiple scripts were put in front of Spielberg, and he went, that's great, that's great, that's great. But Lucas kept going, no, don't like it. No, don't like it. And came up with this idea himself. And so Spielberg knew that they would never get to make this film. And so he just went, we'll go with whatever you say, George. And you can tell because Spielberg clearly doesn't care. And we thought it was over. But as you'll see in the reviews, we get a fifth film. This year saw the release of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which we're going to be talking about in our reviews. Um, but what a legacy, not just the films. There's been the novels, there have been video games, there have been comic mm. books, there have been uh, adventure books where you choose your own adventure. From that little film way back in 1981, which nobody really thought would be much of a hit, turns out, for the last 40-odd years, Indiana Jones has been a huge part of our lives. And for that, we celebrate. Raiders of the Lost Ark. The first, for me, the best uh, and a joy of a film that you can go back to afresh every time you want to pick yourself up and have a real adventure. Ooh. So Andy, where can we find any of the Indiana Jones films if we want to go back and relive those adventures? Loads of places. Uh, I believe that they're on now TV and Sky, but they're definitely on the Disney Plus service. They're all packaged together in there under the, the Indiana Jones collection. Watch all three of them before you go into the new one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with another deep dive next week. And now it's time for our reviews. So following on from our deep dive, talking about Ray's Lost Ark, of course, the next stop is The Dial of Destiny. You have met? My memory's a little fuzzy. Are you still a Nazi? So, yes, The Dial of Destiny sees the return of archaeologist hero Indiana Jones, again played by a now 80-year-old Harrison Ford. However, the film starts in 1944 as the archaeologist, the guy with the bullwhip, retrieves one half of an ancient dial built by Archimedes and steals it from the hands of the Nazis because who doesn't like to punch Nazis? And then we skip ahead to 1969. Indy is in still teaching, no longer adventuring, and is just about to retire when into his life walks his goddaughter, Helena, played with much charm by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And they team up to have an adventure and track down the other half of the dial, which could potentially change history forever. 
So went into this with some trepidation. Um, you've heard us talk about what we thought of Crystal Skull. <laughs> uh, we know our love for Raiders. Uh, we meet clearly very old over the hill Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. He's feeling the years. He looks the years. And you're kind of thinking, did we need this film? And then something happens. The plot starts. And we realize that, you know, we need Indiana Jones in our life and we need Harrison Ford playing that character. And as soon as he puts on the fedora and the leather jacket, the joy begins. Uh, and yeah. there's a lot of poignancy to this film. We This is about a guy who knows that he's at the end of his years and he's reflecting a lot on the life that he's lived and some of the decisions that he's made. I had a good time with it. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the issues, but I think, especially in light of Kingdom of the Crystal School, we didn't hit the mark. There's enough good stuff in this film for it to, to feel like a winner. As you know from my comments in previous weeks leading up to it, all that I wanted was for this to be better than Crystal Skull. I was just hoping for that, and it definitely was. I rank it, at this point in time, I rank it alongside Temple of Doom. But the more that I'm sat thinking about this film, the more I'm thinking I want to revisit this because I think it might actually gain a bit on a repeated viewing. I think it might go up in my estimation to be my third favourite Indiana Jones film. And simply because it's a well-fleshed-out story, it makes sense where it's going, it uses themes of the times that it's set in, so you've got the hippie movements going on, but you've also got the use post-war of Nazi scientists with the CIA on development of things, which is what sparks Mad Mickelson's character being involved in this search for the Dial of Destiny. Especially the upcoming moon landings, which yes. of course we do know that a lot of Nazi scientists were involved with the uh, with the rocket program. All of that is is kind of explored as a background thing, but it never overtakes it. It's just in there because it's set within those times. Harrison Ford is... Melancholy. <laughs> Melancholy and curmudgeon. Uh, and Wallabridge is fiery, rebellious, and a kind of daughter-esque kind of figure. It is goddaughter. I mean, this is Logan. James Mangold yeah, made yeah, this film so. before. He called it Logan. This is the same kind of relationship dynamics that's going on that made Logan work, makes this work, and it works so well. Because whilst Harrison Ford's kind of slowing down because he's getting old, he, there's still some great action going on. Walla Bridge more than compensates with her energy that she brings and the two balance out perfectly throughout. So you mentioned uh, James Mangold. So this is the first Spielberg-less outing for Indy. But there are lots and lots of nods in Spielberg's direction. So, for instance, um, archaeological treasures. There's the ingenious booby-trapped cave sequence. There's the <laughs> there's even a, the fantastic map where we track the direction where Indy's going in and the overlay on that one. And James Mangold really knows how to get the best out of characters. What I think this lacks, and I think this is where the film is on shakier ground, is I think it's it's a bit of a patchy middle act which becomes a little bit padded. Yeah. Mangold understands how to get the best of, out of actors. He's very good at sort of bittersweet elements about talking about somebody in the twilight of their years. And he's confident with, with action sequences. And the action sequences fare pretty well. However, there's, there's a spark missing that Spielberg's inventiveness within action sequences, a kind of cinematic knowingness that Mangold doesn't have. Nothing to take away from him as a director. But what Spielberg brings to an action sequence is always something fresh, always something, uh, 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 that eye that is just mm. absolutely unique to Spielberg. And that, for me, felt 
the action sequence were a little bit more pedestrian than if Spielberg had directed them. You know what else helps the action sequences in the earlier films? While I was watching this film, I was kind of aware of it. John Williams returned to do the score for this. But yeah. it felt like with this film, he was just doing a greatest hits of Indiana Jones score. It felt like he was just repeating all the themes. Rewatching the earlier films this week, and it's seeing how each scene had its own feel and its own vibe through the music. And I think it's because Williams worked so well with Spielberg that it was a union yeah. between the two. That whilst one's getting the visuals right, the other one's going to layer the sound perfectly and they work together on it. Whereas I don't feel that you get that with Mangold and Williams, that basically Mangold's gone, this is how I'm going to do it. And then Williams has gone, uh, I guess I've got to put something on top of it. Doesn't quite gel as well. Not saying that the action sequences are bad. Like Lee said, they are well staged. And the tuk-tuk chase through the streets is an absolute highlight. But they just don't have that extra pizzazz that Spielberg brought to the early films. Spielberg can do this anyway. You know, even on lackluster films, Spielberg's direction brings something out of it. Look at Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Yeah. It's not a good film, but the action and the tension is played perfectly because Spielberg, that's what Spielberg can do. He knows how to deliver those set pieces in, in such a, a unique way. I, I mean, let's talk about what's good. I thought the uh, 1944 sequence with the de-aged Harrison Ford I've seen some reviews saying that he looks rubbery. I thought that opening close-up was fantastic. It's not perfect. There's moments that it looks a bit ropey. Usually on the, the longer shots, it doesn't quite work. When he's running across the train, it looks a bit CGI computer graphics. But it's all convincing enough to allow us to enjoy that flashback opener. My only problem with the de-aging is that, and you saw this with Scorsese with The Irishman, when you de-age an old man, you get a younger man moving and talking just like an old man. Yeah, the physicality bit, yeah. You're basically aware that it was de-aged because you could hear the older Harrison Ford's voice playing through that mouth. And we know what Harrison Ford sounded like 40 years ago. That's the only problem. But generally, that de-aging was some of the best that I've seen. Yeah. And it made that opening scene work a treat as a result. Uh, I thought Toby Jones was great and uh, be probably filling yes. in the role for Denim Elliott, but uh, it was always good to see Toby Jones on the screen. Uh, and then we get the relationship between uh, Indy and Helena, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, and this worked perfectly. In the same way that you had the cynic and adventurous Karen Allen with with, with Marion in the, in the first film. She's very much a sort of Howard Hawks female character. She's uh, She can joke. She can throw a punch, she can lead the adventure, and she's charming as anything. And, and yes, you've, you've seen some of the sort of negative reviews saying she's replacing him. Indiana Jones, even in this movie, is an old fella. She's the yeah. youth. She is the, the, uh, the spirit that keeps him going. So it's a nice little role reversal. And if it was to ever happen, I'd love to see a return as this character. I want to revisit this because I, the more I'm sat thinking about it, the more that I realise how much I enjoyed about it. There's nods, there's cameos, there's references to the earlier films and characters. The the last act will work if you if you allow yourself to go with it. Yep. It's, it's as, as completely as unsubtle as Crystal Skull. <laughs> um, if you buy into it, then it's worth it. But the sort of the coda to that is what's really, really important. It's a great final chapter. Yeah, it, it really does close our relationship with Indiana Jones. And, you know, a film that was conceived by Lucas and Spielberg as uh, a love letter to 1940s serials. This this has been uh, um, a, an interesting serial in its own right. And it does feel like it now has finally come to a satisfactory close after the last film.
a fitting goodbye yeah. to our favourite archaeologist. Yeah. So our next film, I've not seen, but Andy has, and he's going to be talking about the new DreamWorks release. Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. Oh, hey! I'm Ruby Gilman, normal teenager. This is my family. So embarrassing. You each landed one. That's my mom. I think I'm in love. My dad. My annoying little brother. And my Uncle Bro. Ta-da! We also have a big secret. We turn into giant Kraken who protect the world from evil mermaids. Not nice. I'm Ruby Gilded. Teenage Kraken. A sweet and awkward high school student from a family of undersea dwellers who've relocated onto land finds her life turned upside down when she accidentally discovers that she is actually a part of ocean royalty as a giant warrior kraken, often mistaken as aggressors but actually the defenders of the sea in this latest offering from DreamWorks Animation. When her awakened abilities threaten the lives of the town around her, she, she must embrace who she really is and work to change people's perceptions in order to save those she loves. This film landed with barely a splash after a surprise last-minute marketing campaign that hinted that the studio weren't confident enough in the end result. Maybe it's the unfortunate timing of it having it release around the time of a much more high-profile coming-of-age film about an underwater character who heads to land. Or maybe it's the fact it also comes in the wake of the well-received Turning Red last year that tackles many of the same themes. However, something about the quirky animation style captured my attention in the trailer enough for me to check it out and I'm quite pleased that I did. The script has some wonderfully quirky moments littered throughout, from the fact that Ruby's family with their blue-hued skin tones and rather tentacle-looking limbs manage to hide within a human town by claiming they're from Canada, to the way that Ruby tries to fit in with school life. The opening act does its job well of getting us to care for the awkward Ruby and accept that the people in this small fishing town are just too dumb to notice anything strange is going on. So once the main story kicks into gear, with krakens and mermaids arising, we can just sit back and enjoy the fun, whilst also appreciating the coming-of-age analogies scattered throughout, much in the same manner that the aforementioned Turning Red did so well. Yes, the middle act does feel a little padded out, as Ruby explores her undersea kingdom and meets the family she never knew existed. But at a tight 91 minutes, it doesn't suffer too much from this, and the final act is a glorious, albeit predictable, resolution. Ruby Gilman isn't anything we haven't seen before, but in the usually capable hands of DreamWorks, let's just forget that B-Movie ever existed for this moment, it works and should offer enough delight for the younger audiences whilst having some genuine comedy moments that the adults can latch onto. I can see this landing well once it arrives on streaming in a few months, but if you do get a chance whilst it's on cinema release, why not take the family along and treat yourself? That sounds interesting, but a film I have absolutely no interest in. I, I did like the original movie version, uh, even though it's not my favourite Roald Dahl story. Andy, you did the Lord's work by sitting through Matilda the Musical. This school is full of rebels. You! What is your name? Matilda. Matilda Wormwood. Matilda Wormwood. 
criminals like you. Need a real lesson. See if that child is still alive. Adapted from the stage musical, which itself was adapted from the beloved story from Roald Dahl, Matilda the Musical finally arrived on Netflix in the UK recently, which gave me a chance to finally see the film that so many have told me was great. As a fan of Dahl's book, indeed a fan of pretty much everything the author created, I was quite looking forward to this. The previous adaptation from 1996 was fun, and even though it altered some elements and relocated the events to Across the Seas, it still captured that Dahl sensibility in a strong way. Matilda lives a lonely life with parents who don't want her, no friends around her. Seeking refuge in her imagination and the pleasure of books that she reads from the mobile library run by Mrs. Phelps, she finds herself sent to Cruncham Hall School when inspectors discover that she hasn't actually been getting any formal education. There, she finds it hard to fit in with the other kids, initially finding just one friend, fellow new student Lavender, and she also discovers that the school is run by the fierce and tyrannical Mrs. Trunchbull, who enforces her bizarre rules with an iron fist. Matilda's rebellious spirit and growing mental abilities start to make an impact on the school environment, slowly sparking a revolution that sees the rest of the kids rally around her. First things first, the cast in this adaptation are great. With Alicia Weir in the lead role, managing to inhabit the role beautifully with a fantastic delivery of all aspects of the character. The rest of the child cast are all strongly paced, with nerdy a weak element amongst them. Many of them are stage acting kids, and this certainly helps as the stage show is transferred to screen. The adult support are also strongly placed, with Lashana Lynch offering solace and comfort as Miss Honey, Sindhu V as the librarian offering charming interludes as Matilda regales her with a story that she makes up, and Matilda's parents, Mr and Mrs Wormwood, played to joyously cruel effect by the ever-excellent Stephen Graham and Andrea Riseborough. The biggest strength in the cast, however, is the almost unrecognisable turn from Emma Thompson as Mrs Trunchbull, who gives genuine menace under wonderful prosthetics and bodysuit, a stronger representation of the role than the 1996 version, which was still decently done by Pam Ferris. The film also looks good, director Matthew Varchus making great use of locations and sets to present this skewed world setting straight out of Dahl's imagination. However, despite the strong positives, the end result was underwhelming and a bit of a chore to sit through, with me finding it annoying for the most of it. The reason for the annoyance? The music. It just didn't land for me. I love a good musical, and I'd heard so much positive about this one ever since the stage show sprung up. So to find that the musical moments were so forced into the story and seemed too focused on being witty and quirky rather than pushing a narrative or offering some insight into characters was quite jarring. By the end of it, I couldn't recall any moments of songs that sat with me, the whole effort simply washing away. And if your music doesn't stand out in a musical, then maybe, just maybe, you shouldn't have opted to make it a musical. Perhaps those musical moments serve their purpose better on stage, but here they just seem to frustratingly get in the way. A good musical uses tunes to push the story along, or it regales us with an internal monologue of characters that we wouldn't otherwise know. Here, it just serves to tell us what's already happening, only with dancers. As the running time trudged past the first hour, I found myself wanting the songs to stop and for the film to just get back to the actual story. This was disappointing to me as a fan of musicals, and it was also disappointing as a fan of Dahl. By the time this ended, I found a new appreciation for the 1996 film, despite that film's flaws, and I found a new dislike of Tim Minchin as a result. We've still not had a definitive adaptation of the novel, 
but it's safe to say that this one is hashtag not my Matilda. I've got to be honest, not much interest in that. I say I did like the Dano DeVito take on it. But yes. what else have we got coming out over the next week? Have we got another busy box office week? Uh, there's a lot at cinemas this coming week. Smaller releases, I Am Kevin and Smoking Causes Coughing, both release. But the big releases this weekend are Elemental and Insidious The Red Door. And then on Monday, Mission Impossible. Wow. And, and you know how much we've been looking forward to that. Yes. Uh, obviously, we won't get to see Mission Impossible before we record next week's show. So that will be in two weeks time. But we are marking it as top of our list to get to see as soon as we can. Over on Now TV and Sky, if you want to suffer, you can watch Black Adam. Also, Broker lands on there this week and Seriously Red. Over on Netflix, there's the Wham! documentary. There's the comedy heist movie with Adam Devine called The Outlaws, which actually looks all right. And um, Free Fire lands on there this week. And over on Amazon, we're looking forward to the sequel later this year. Why not celebrate um, how great Dune was as it lands on Amazon this week? Well, that's it for this week. Uh, we are giddy with excitement for Mission Impossible. Can't wait to bring you a review of that, but it won't be next week's show. So that's it for this week. But yes, don't worry. We've not forgotten. It's time for our neat things. Stuff that we've done, stuff that we've enjoyed, whether we watched it, played it, seen it, ate it. As long as it's a neat thing for us, we're going to tell you about it. And traditionally, Andy goes first. And who am I to break with tradition? My neat thing this week. And I brought the basic neat thing to the table last year when it launched. And that was DC Infinite, the comics reading app subscription service from DC that is similar to Marvel Unlimited. And now I'm bringing the particular comic range that DC have now caught up with that app with that is now forcing me to consider paying the extra money per year to get the dc infinite ultra where it's only one month behind because boy i am well and truly hooked in by the dawn of dc yes it's a perfect introduction they're a post-crisis again they've just done dark crisis and all of their storylines are basically come to an end and it's a reboot for the universe, but it's a soft reboot. It keeps the legacy stuff there whilst also setting up what's to come. Anyone who's pondered, I want to get back into Superman, but I've missed so much. Where can I jump in? Dawn of DC is exactly where you should start. A load of their titles are starting from issue one again, and they're okay, setting down the new frameworks and the new groundworks. And I've, I've, today, before we've recorded, I've read through 12 comics to start off this Dawn of DC, even titles that have never really bothered with much in the past, I'm picking up and jumping in because it's so good. On the Superman front, uh, the whole reset of the DC begins with Lex wiping the memory of Clark Kent and Superman being the same person. They're doing a Spider-Man okay. thing where it's now no one can remember that the two are the same person except for those loved ones close to him. And how Jordan's returned to Earth. Jonathan Kent has discovered that there's an Ultraman going between every universe, destroying every version of Kal-El. And regardless of who your favourite DC characters are, every one of them is getting a fresh start, building on the old legacy, setting up the new direction. And it's easy for casual readers to jump back on board. I'm well and truly in. Like I say, the DC Infinite app is usually about six months behind. So these are the titles that came out in January this year. I desperately need to up my subscription to the Ultra Sub for £84 a year so I can read everything for the past five months just on the back of what I've read today. Fantastic. Dawn of DC is DC's best relaunch in quite some time. Fantastic. That kind of passed me by. I'm, I have a tendency to be quite behind on, on my comics. There's only a couple that I get current subscriptions to, so I'll, I'll check that out. Uh, mine happened last weekend. Yes, it was Glastonbury. No, I wasn't there, but I did watch it on television, and you've got to 
got to be honest, the BBC do their Glastonbury mm -hmm. so, so well. Some of the highlights for me were the Foo Fighters, which was great to see them. They were the not-so-secret secret band. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I just want to point out that I, th I thought the highlight of Glastonbury was Rick Ashley playing Highway to Hell while what, singing it uh, while playing the drums. And if that's not what the joy of Glastonbury is about, then mm -hmm. I don't know. It was absolutely phenomenal. I, I never had much regard for Rick Astley. He was a, was a pop star. I always thought he was a little bit bland. Uh, I'd always heard terribly nice things about him, but him playing Highway to Hell and then later doing The Smiths uh, with The Blossoms, I just thought was awesome. So hats off to Rick Astley at uh, Glastonbury and hats off to the BBC for their coverage of it. It was absolutely phenomenal. You don't have to sit through the whole thing now. You can just pick up the artists that you want to see. Uh, it was just so well done. Still doesn't make me want to go. I don't like festivals. Much rather sit at home and watch them. Uh, but yeah, Glastonbury was absolutely yeah. fantastic. Well covered. And that's us out of here for this week as we look at further adventures elsewhere. Andy, busy week? Yeah. <laughs> There's loads of films that have got my eye on. I am I am actually looking forward because we should be getting that um, smoking causes coughing. And that's from um, Quentin Dupier, who gave us uh, the, the 2010 film about the tire that kills people, Rubber. Oh, right, yes. Absolute brilliance. Um, so I'm quite looking forward to it. It looks like a, a kind of Power Rangers-esque parody, and I'm all there. Yeah, I've seen clips from it. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I have seen clips <laughs> from it. I can't, I can't figure it out yet. Um, yeah, I've got so much to catch up. I did start on Black Mirror. I'm going to uh, wade my way through that one. But yeah, I have a deadline, a writing deadline that I have to meet uh, by the end of the week. So I've got two days of just looking at a screen, writing everything and thinking it's rubbish. I'm hoping it's not, but that's how I feel. So we'll be back again next week, another show. But Andy, how odd that it should end this way for us after so many stimulating encounters. I almost regret it. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? You're listening to No Barriers Radio, the film show for film geeks. No, you're not. No, no. <laughs> You've done that one. <laughs> I've done that one. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And remember, when passing through the gift shop, to buy an only one item. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. All right, try again. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Please have all your ice creams ready to eat. No, I don't work either. <laughs> uh, I'm so tired. I'm so, so sad. Um, 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 Hello and welcome to the film file. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And we've already started with a smile. First up, Lindsay Story over on Facebooks. Facebooks? Facebooks is now plural. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of them. There's an entire series of Facebooks now. Yeah, I'd go with, I mean, train spotting is one that. Is it the best out of the bunch? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, 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 um, that, sorry, that line. It was I, I just caught my phone with my finger and it was like, oh no, I did that yesterday in a not yesterday, the other day in a in a big meeting. Just downloaded Audible and I and I glanced with uh, over the screen with my and the Audible starts playing and, and everybody's looking round. <laughs> I'm trying to turn the damn thing off. What do we know, Andy? What do we know? 
not a great deal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we, okay, we'll just leave it at the headline then. Uh, this was confirmed by a, a snap from set. <laughs> Didn't they die? Baraka? Yeah. No, Baraka's oh, not forget thinking, it. wasn't in the last film. All You're right. thinking forget of all that then. You're thinking of Kano, but yeah, Kano's oh, going yeah, to be yeah, in yeah, as yeah. well. Right. I'll, okay, I'll ask if Kano's going to be in and make that. <laughs> I'm still refusing to accept that that crystal skull ever existed. <laughs> I don't even have a problem with the. I don't even have a problem with the whole aliens incident. No, no, it seemed to make sense for me. It was 1950s. Taps into the Mayan philosophies and things like that. It's just how it was just all the film presented. itself. Yeah, uh, we'll be back with another deep dive next week. Because it's the dial dun, 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 of destiny. That's if Tenacious D made this film. <laughs>